is to challenge my preaching style. Many times you'll see me come up in the, the pulpit and I'll have about five or eight pages of notes and each one of them are worded and I'm reading you my study throughout the week. However, this morning, what I want to do is something a little different. I want to challenge my sermon style and also, and ultimately, prayerfully edify each and every one of you with a simple conversational proclamation of the gospel. No notes, just you know, a little checklist here of the things that I want to speak about, and just speak very naturally to you and, and, and proclaim some of the details of the good news that we know. This past week, I made a video called Why Futurism Fails and Preterism Wins. A great video. I enjoyed going through it. I enjoyed going through the details. However, as I had a discussion with my younger brother about the Christian faith, and I was all excited to let him watch this video with me that I made, I put on the video, and he watched it for about 15 minutes. And 15 minutes into the video, he stopped me and he said, what are you talking about? And uh, that was a very clear rebuke in in my regard to know that it's to the detriment if we're speaking to people and what we're saying is going right over their head. That Again, there's no fruit there. We want to speak to people and be able to explain things in a way that they would understand what we're saying. So my brother said that, and I sat there, and I said, okay, well, I have to take a step back and try to figure out a way to explain this to him. So what then I began to say was, well, the whole purpose of the video what, that I was saying futurism fails and preterism wins is that futurism offers you eternal life somewhere else at another time, a deferred hope. One day you'll get eternal life and you'll get to live with Jesus and all things will be fixed. I said preterism is offering the view that here is the solution. The kingdom of God is something that is not seen visibly, that yes, we see tears, mourning, crying, and death physically, but we understand that in the spirit, those things are no more. That when we trust Jesus Christ, we know that you cannot die, right? There's no death for those who are in Christ. You will physically die, but you will not die by a lot. You will not die spiritually. You will live forever with God. Also, we would say that the gospel in its very basic form, the world has created their own foundations. They have created their own things they believe and their own worldview. Whereas we're offering people life in the now. We're saying that if you know Jesus Christ, as John 17 verse 5 says, that eternal life is this, that they would know Jesus Christ whom God has sent. So our goal is to help people understand that in and through Jesus, they can find all that they're looking for, satisfaction, joy, peace, whatever it might be. And I began to, to explain this to him. I essentially told him, the goal of the gospel is to live your best life now. That's what we're offering people. We're offering them their best life now. If that reminded you of the guy with the big smile and the book that you find in all the bookstores, then you're on the same page as me as I'm preaching this morning. So your best life now. You would imagine my brother not knowing too much of the Bible. His next question was, well, where is that in the Bible? Great question to ask somebody when they begin to preach to you about the Bible. I was very excited about that because my younger brother is now challenging me in regards to what's in the Bible. So I began to throw out some verses I know. And also, now that I... I've already preached a little bit here. If you look on the back of your bulletin, I have a little bit of a, I'll bring you through my sermon this morning. Um, again, the first verse I mentioned here on the back of the bulletin, which I mentioned to my younger brother, was John 10.10, 10, where Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it to the full. And I began to explain to my brother the details, which I'll get into here in a moment. Um, ultimately, who is the thief? That's what we want to ask ourselves. Who's the thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy the best life that God has for you? Why are people telling you that that is a Jesus life to the full? So then I began to explain to him, you know, if that wasn't enough, that Jesus offers life to the full. It says it right there. I said, well, also going into Matthew chapter 6, we read Jesus very clearly teaching that 
in regards to all the material things that this world goes after, Jesus says, he gives a list, he says, you know, the Gentiles seek after these things, um, you know, who, who's going to feed me, who's going to clothe me, where am I going to find food, where am I going to find clothing, the things that our world worries about. My brother very clearly understood that. He worries about those things. I said, but Jesus, he directs us in a different way. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you, talking about food, clothing, and so forth. So I then began to explain to my brother, obviously, he doesn't know what the kingdom of God is. So his next question is, okay, seek first the kingdom of God. That sounds great, very religious. So I had to explain to him what that means. I said, seek first the things that are leading to love, the things that are righteous, the things that are peaceable. Those are the things that you need to seek if you want God to add blessings to your life. If you're not seeking those things, you can very clearly understand why you're not seeing God's best for your life. Then I began to explain to him his righteousness, that we all have a form of righteousness that we want to find in and of ourselves. Just like the Old Covenant Pharisees and the Jews, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own rather than understanding righteousness from God. So I began to explain to my brother that the thief is that... What we do to ourselves, we establish our own righteousness, we establish our own ways, our own worldview, our own way of looking at the world, our own answers to the world's problems, and therefore we still kill and destroy everything that God has for us because we're doing it ourselves. It's all about me, my righteousness, my way of finding peace, my way of understanding God, my way of healing the world rather than understanding God's provided solution. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given. You would imagine my brother was pretty convicted in that moment. I don't know that I'm seeking those things. Again, that's a very simple way for us to offer the gospel to our friends. People say, you know, why does the world look like this? Well, are you seeking righteousness, peace, and joy? And if you're not, there you have your first issue that you need to come to terms with, why you're not seeing God's best in your life. Then the next passage I brought him to is Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says the wise man is the man that listens to my teachings and puts them into practice. He will be likened to the man that builds his house on a rock, and when the storm comes, his house will not fall. I then began to explain to my brother that the crux of Christianity really is that the world, there's two different, there's dueling realities. There's two different realities happening here, or you might say two different foundations upon which you could build your life, the rock and the sand. Now, there's one that comes naturally to each and every one of us. That would be the carnal wisdom. It's the way that we can come up with. I could be righteous. I could do it on my own. I don't necessarily need Jesus, right? I can live a good life. I can uh, love my neighbor as I love myself. I can uh, do good deeds and serve the poor and help people. I don't necessarily need Jesus or his righteousness or whatever the church might be offering, right? That's, that's most people's issue. So they're building their foundation on a carnal foundation, a, the sand. Essentially, that's what Jesus is saying, that the thief... You, that's who's led your whole life, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I asked my younger brother, I said, your whole life, whose wisdom have you followed? You know, whose wisdom? Are you following your mom's? Are you following? And my brother admitted, no, I pretty much listen to myself. I choose myself. I said, okay, so up to this point in your life, you're to blame for everything you receive. How you doing? And he obviously had a moment where he said, okay, I, I, maybe I'm listening to what my brother's offering here. I said, remember, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy I come, meaning Jesus, to give you life and life to the full. I said, so really the biggest problem with the world and what Christians are so antagonized about is the world is failing to listen to what we're saying. Or where's the world saying, where's life? Where's your God? How do I find life to the full? Why isn't this world satisfying? There can't be any God because I'm not satisfied in my life or there's bad things going on in the world. And therefore we look at the world and we say, but we've offered it to you. 
We've offered all the things that you're asking for. You're just refusing to listen. You're like the fool who wants to keep building on the foundation that has stole, killed, and destroyed everything that God has had for you from the minute you were born. Think about it. Think of all the results of our lives lived on our own. And my younger brother began to to think about this. So I challenged him. I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, there's two keys in Scripture um, in regards to how you can find yourself living in this life. I said, uh, do you want peace? I asked my brother, do you want peace? Do you, you know, are you seeking peace in this life? And I imagine just like everybody else, he is. So I brought him to a passage that everybody in this room should know all too well. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. I said, do you know peace? I said, well, God tells us how we can find peace. He says that if you seek the things that are edifying, the things that are loving, the things that are peaceable, you set your mind on things that are above instead of being concerned with the material world, how I got to go to work tomorrow, I got to do this, I got to do that. Set your mind on things above. And when you set your mind on things above, you have the promise from Scripture that God will give you peace. So the question I asked my brother, again, do you have peace? He says, no. I said, have you been setting your mind on the things that are above? And he would steadily admitted no. He obviously readily was, no, that's not the case. So then I asked him, okay, another one that we have is if we want to be productive and effective. And I believe everybody in this life wants to be productive and effective in living out life. You want to feel that your life is useful. You want to feel that you're living for a cause, that you're actually accomplishing God's best for your life. We all want to do that. And in Scripture, we have a very clear explanation of how to do that. Second Peter chapter 1 tells you, add diligence to your life, add self-control to your life, add godliness to your life, add righteousness to your life. And if you add these things, Second Peter chapter 1 verse 8 very clearly tells you that if you add, continue to add these things to your life, you will neither be unproductive nor ineffective in your use of the knowledge of God. So right there, to all the world's problems, we just offered the solution. That's what we're saying. Jesus, find his teachings, add these things to your life, and if you're not adding these things to your life, you can't blame God, you must blame the thief. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God has offered. And the thief is the carnal mind. It's the carnal wisdom that we keep building in this world we're building our wisdom upon. What us Christians should recognize, no, we have the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that. That we have the wisdom of God and we should be supplying the world with a foundation in order to live life to the full. So, after I began to explain all of this, obviously I came up with my sermon. That was the end of the conversation with my brother. Now, I want to encourage us a little bit here. John Piper said this. He said, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. You see, in that context where God is being glorified and we're being satisfied in Jesus Christ is where we can find the truth of what Joel Osteen has said. Live your best life now. You see, we can find that. If we're seeking to glorify God, we're seeking to find satisfaction in Jesus Christ, we can then find that. Joel Osteen said it this way. God wants you to have a good life, a life filled with love, joy, peace, and fulfillment. That doesn't mean it will always be easy, but it will always be good. Again, that's the goal. The goal of our faith is not that it's going to always be easy to live out the things that God wants for us or to stay firm on our foundation in Christ. But we know that if we do that, if I add diligence to my life, if I add self-control to my life, if I follow all the instructions of Jesus and the instructions of the apostles, I know that I'm building on a firm foundation and that when I'm looking at life and I'm expecting certain results, those are the things I could look to do. You know, if I want to see God's best for my life, I can ask myself, am I living out these things? Am I finding ways to add these things to my life? Am I having faith? And we're going to get into that in a moment here. So, we, again, we want to just simply find ways. How can God be glorified when we are satisfied in Christ? And 
I say all of that because I believe that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, as we're going to look here in a second to at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy. He's instructing Timothy in regards to how he can find life and how he can lead others to find life to the full. We know that there's a a context to uh, the writing of Timothy, and I just want to talk about that real quickly. We know that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a leader, one of the leaders at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, and he's writing to Timothy in this first century time. Obviously, there was a host of false teachers. There was much confusion in regards to what the right relationship with God would be, not much different than our culture today. You hear many different opportunities or offerings as far as how you can find life to the full. You have uh, Joel Osteen's seven, you have the scriptural seven ways to find your best life now this morning. Um, we know that there's a host of uh, new age wisdom. If you go to the bookstore, you know, they have this whole philosophy new age category where you can look into all the steps to make your life better, to, you know, not be angry or all the host of different things that our society feels secular wisdom in regards to living your best life. Now, in the first century, we know that it was warring with Judaism, right? Judaism was one of the leading factors there. Um, these Judaizers believed they needed to lead the, the um, Christians back to Judaism. Ultimately, that was because the religious leaders were benefiting from the, the, the system, right? They knew that if people leave Judaism, we have no more people to teach. Our system is failing, which it was, and that wouldn't have been good to them. However, also you have the Gentiles who were also very confused. Um, a story you read in Scripture in the book of Acts is at Ephesus, they had um, an amazing temple to Artemides, one of the Greek gods. And they have this, um, this beautiful temple, and they're making idols and selling them, right? They're making a lot of money. These people are profiting off of this system. Now, if you come along and you start telling them that their system's wrong, their god is false, you read about the story in Acts, how they chase them in, they drag them, throw stones at them, and get them out of the town. Kind of like our culture, when we try to tell them godly wisdom, they pretty much throw stones, maybe not in that necessarily physical way, but they throw stones at us and tell us that their way is better, and really what we're doing is we're taking the profit out of the world's hands, right? Because we're offering them godly wisdom, not obsession with wealth, obsession with all the ways that the world tells you that you'll find life to the full. So we're essentially taking the, the profit away from the world, and, and that becomes a problem. And that's exactly what was happening in the first century. As the, Jesus comes on the scene... He's taking away the profit of the religious leaders of Judaism, right? they profiting because the Christians are leading people away from that old covenant system. And you have the, the Gentiles, their systems are all coming under judgment and death as well. Nobody wants to listen to the Gentiles who are in darkness and confusion. Everybody's listening to these Christians. And we're going to get into Timothy here where you see why this was a problem and ultimately why he's telling Timothy how, or how the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy that he can find life and life to the full. So if you're interested, you can turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's going to be on page 1189 of the Pew Bible. And you see here, I'm just going to go to verse 6 quickly. The Apostle uh, Timothy says this, it says, well, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. This actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. You see, there were people that were trying to lead the church astray and doing things for their own profit. The religious Pharisees, the Gentiles that were leading people in all sorts of confusion in regards to worshiping pagan deities. And we know that they were doing this because gain. That was, it was for their gain. 
Now, what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy here is that if godliness, which would be true piety, true reverence, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where you're going to gain. This is the true gain, not the gain that the world will offer, because we know that all of that comes to fail. That's not good. Again, our media is full of these examples. I'm just going to read you um, 6 to 10 here, and then I'm going to talk a little bit. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, our media is very is full of these examples. If you watch TV, you can see examples of people who seek after wealth, seek after their own their own efforts or their own glory, and we watch them fall very fast. Um, dare I say that many of us in this room probably know some people that have sought after worldly things, worldly wealth, and unfortunately have suffered destruction in that regard. False efforts will always lead to false uh, failed attempts. Again, you're never going to find life if you're always seeking false ways of finding life. That's never going to be the way. So we see here now the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy into the true way of life. If you move into chapter, verse 11, he says, but flee from these things. Again, flee from that desire to um, find worldly things as your source of satisfaction. Flee from the worldly things as the way that the foundation that you're building your life upon. Instead, man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness fight the good fight of faith take hold of eternal life to which you were called and made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses so we see here uh, actually seven things that we can find that we can add to our life to find our best life now and i'm going to take you through some of these things here this morning the first thing is that we're going to see that they must be properly placed because there's also a false righteousness there's a false godliness. We see that in scripture that the Pharisees in that time had a form of godliness, but they were denying the power of that godliness. There's a false faith. You can have faith in a lot of wrong things. You can have a false love or a love that is not from a pure heart, a love that is selfish and it just seeks uh, to be serving self rather than serving the one that you're seeking to love. There's a false perseverance or just giving up would be a false perseverance. And then there's a false meekness. There's a you know false humility that can be offered. And we see a lot of that demonstrated by the first century Jews or that system of Judaism at that time and how they were walking in a way that was unworthy of what God had for them. And I'm going to take you through some of these details this morning. I, I just want us to understand that we would see that in context, in the first century context, for example, there's righteousness, right? There's righteousness of Christ, which we understand is where true righteousness can be found. Then there's self righteousness. That would be our first thing in talking about righteousness. The Greek word is dikaiosune, and it means justification or equity. It's you know, to be made equal with God, to be um, put in right standing with our God. And you can follow the Old Testament understanding of that. God gives Abraham, he established a covenant with Abraham based on faith. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. He believed in this one true God, walked worthy of that. Then we follow that story. We know that Israel is given the old covenant, that if they listen to that old covenant, that will be their righteousness. If they walk worthy of those details, we know that old covenant Israel, unfortunately, subverts the story. They change the story, and they make it about them. It's not about following God's 
principles to glorify him. It's actually follow God's principles so they can feel good about themselves. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, for example, God tells uh, Israel, when I bring you into the land and I bless you with all these things, do not look to yourselves and say it's because we are righteous. You know, I deserve this because I was good. No, don't do that. Understand that this is what God has done, and he's doing this because the nations that were before you were evil, and he's giving you the grace to be his people and represent him in the land. That's the details of Old Covenant Israel. We know that Israel doesn't do that. They get in the land. They begin to think it's all about them. They think that you know, they're self-centered, and ultimately that leads us up to the time of the Pharisees, where the Pharisees made the system all about them. It was all about looking to the Pharisees, boasting in the Pharisees, nothing about God. You know, you, you actually, one of the things that stands out to me would be, in the first century, you would be more fearful of violating the law and what the Pharisees would do to you rather than what God would do to you. You didn't care. It wasn't really about God. It was about the Pharisees are going to remove us from the temple. They're going to stone us rather than, but what would God think? And I think a self, self-righteousness always ends up that way. We always end up fearing carnal things rather than God himself. We end up establishing a you know, self-righteousness. If my righteousness is not seen, if I'm not seen as righteous, my, my church won't follow me or people won't listen to me or my friends won't like me. That's self, self-righteousness. When I trust in Christ's righteousness, I know that I'm never going to be worthy and I'm going to seek to grow in that righteousness and be like Jesus, as Jesus reminds us, be like our Father who in heaven is, who is perfect. Again, we have to grow into that. So what we do is we accept the righteousness of Christ by faith and we grow into that reality. That's true righteousness. The righteousness that the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy to seek is a righteousness that is founded upon what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not the righteousness Old Covenant Israel sought, not a righteousness that is found within yourself. And that is very important because that is ultimately what Jesus is preaching against in the first century. He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. They are hypocrites. They seek to be seen by men. They do their prayers, their offerings, their service to others, all to be seen by men for a self-righteousness rather than a righteousness that comes from God. Then we get into godliness. He tells him to seek godliness. The Greek word here is eusibia, which means reverent or piety, you know, in contrast to the wives' tales. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul is very clear that True godliness is in contrast to the wives' tales. And I want to share with you quickly some wives' tales from Judaism. Whether done literally or figuratively, saying poo, 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 spitting three times, is a classical response to something done evil. You know, if something bad happens in your life, you would say poo, 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 or you would spit three times, and apparently the evil things are going to leave your life. That's being reverent of God. Again, many of us know in our own culture things that people do to be reverent of God where we want to point people in the direction of true godliness. Understand God's true ways. Don't be obsessed with, let me throw the salt over my right shoulder. That way I won't see bad luck in my life. Or, you know, silly things such as the Midrash legend that when you sneezed, this was to announce impending death. The story is told that until the time of Jacob, a person at the close of his life sneezed and died instantly. Some ancient people believed that this was a little explosion in the head and ensured immediate death. Rather than the mere irritation of the nasal passages, a sneeze was deemed a grave omen. Indeed, this may be the underlying reason for when we say, God bless you, or long health. A traditional belief is that when a person sneezes during a conversation, whatever has just been said will occur, based on the concept of sneezing on the truth. While not as foolproof as direct prophecy, it is said to indicate events that were rational, plausible, and will actually come to pass. Again, 
We don't want to be caught up in these things. We don't want to be caught up in weird superstitions that make us seem like we're godly or we're striving after God. We want to actually understand what true godliness is, and that comes through understanding the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's not being obsessed with these wives' tales and allowing these things to give us a form of godliness, right? You know, oh, man, he must be holy because he threw the salt over his shoulder, or he must be holy because he says, God bless you after you sneeze. Um, to give you a last one, according to the renowned Eliza of Worms, a leader of the pietist Hasidic Ashkenazi people of the medieval period, metals were a product of civilization and thus could successfully attack and repel evil spirits of a less sophisticated society. Again, many of us know in our culture we have the, the what's that, the rabbit's foot, um, is something that's supposed to give you luck. I know many people during the parable were probably holding on to their the rabbit's foot. Um, again, these give us a form of godliness. They seem reverent. They seem like you care about spiritual things. But it, all they amount to is wives' tales. We want to understand true godliness. That What does it mean to truly be reverent to our God? What does our God tell us? He tells us to love our neighbor. Then when we love our neighbor, that we see the face of Jesus in our neighbor. And that's a way of following true godliness. Not being obsessed with these strange ways of seeming godly. Um, another example, another thing he tells us to do is seek after faith. Again, we know from the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. The Greek word is pistis, which means constant, convicted. Um, what we would stand upon, it's the root word of reliance or where you find your reliance. Um, a lot in our culture today, I think we have a confusion between belief and faith. Belief is something that you can just numbly believe. You know, I believe that when we end church, everybody will leave. Some people might stay. We don't know that. My faith is something that is built upon something I know beyond any reasonable doubt. For example, when Simon Peter knew G, he had faith in Jesus. He, he knew that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. That way, when, when uh, Simon Peter saw Jesus floating on the water, right, this ghost, this apparition that they saw floating on the water, Simon Peter immediately, his faith responded. He said, if that is you, Lord, tell me to come out of the boat. He had faith that his Messiah would always call him to do things that were seemingly impossible. And what does Peter do? He, he exercises faith, not belief. Belief would have kept him in the boat, trust me. You know, I, I believe that you're, you're, you're able to make me walk on water, but I'm just going to stay here. That's, that's belief. Faith says, I know that that is Jesus Christ, and I know that he can do beyond my wildest imagination. Therefore, I'm going to get out of the boat and trust him. Faith is an action. It's a verb. It's something that we actively do. It's not simply believing. So the faith that we're called to have is faith that we know that we know that we know Jesus is the Lord, and we can stand upon that foundation. I know that God goes before me. Therefore, when I preach the gospel, I can, be, I can trust that he will work in the midst of that situation. That should encourage us to preach the gospel all the more because we know that we actually have faith, not believe. We have faith that God will go before us in all circumstances. So... Again, faith is being the wise man. It's being the wise man that's building upon the rock, knowing how firm your foundation really is. One of the things I posit is, do you really, really believe it? That's, that's what I would say faith is. Do you really believe it when you sit in the darkness of solitary time? Do you really believe the things that you say you believe? Because if you do, that's faith. If you, you start to question, you start to doubt, you start to think maybe these things aren't right, you need to do exactly what the Apostle Paul said. Examine yourself to see if you are of the faith. That's, that's the goal. We want to really know and have a strong foundation in regards to faith. Again, Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Then the next thing we're told to seek, or Timothy here is told to seek, is love, agapeo, a love that is not self-seeking, love that is from a pure heart, to use that verse in 1 Timothy 1.5. 
Love from a pure heart. Love that is last. A love that lasts. Again, we see this in 1 Corinthians 13. That hope, joy, all those things can fade. Tongues can fade. But the one thing that will always stand, the one thing that never fails and that is always great is love. Love from a pure heart. Love that says I'm going to serve and help people when it might not necessarily benefit me or it has nothing to do with me. It's about loving my neighbor as myself. Not doing this just because Jesus said it and I want to be declared righteous, but doing it because I genuinely care. I genuinely have a love from a pure heart. That's the type of love that we must seek for our neighbor. Then we're told to persevere, perseverance, hupomone, which is a cheerful endurance, an endurance that is based upon faith. It's, again, you can be in a situation and endure through the situation without having faith. That is not perseverance. Perseverance requires faith. Perseverance says, if I go through this and I strive through this, I know that there's going to be results. I know that there's going to be something that is going to come out of this. Um, We don't find the first century saints just numbly sitting around saying, well, I sure hope that Jesus is the Messiah. No, we know them saying, beyond any reasonable doubt, we will walk worthy, we will stand upon our foundation of faith, and we will persevere through these times. Ultimately, the the term hupomone in Greek is the root word of through, meaning to move through things, to actually go through. For example, I guess the, the example I would give is if you see a tunnel and the tunnel is to your best life. Now, if I believe that the tunnel is to my best life, I might say, I'm going to sit on the outside of the tunnel over here. I'm not going to go through the tunnel. I'm just going to stay over here and trust that eventually I'll, I'll have a better life. I'll believe that. Or I could have faith that whatever is on the other end of that tunnel that I must move through, I will surely, I have faith that I will be rewarded. That's perseverance, that you move through it with faith. And we see this in many places in Scripture. Um, I wrote here, in context of the first century saints having the faith to and willing to listen and flee to the mountains when it seemed like odd advice. It seemed as though we're leaving everything we trust, and you're telling us to flee to the mountains. And this whole thing is going to be destroyed. And they were essentially basing everything that they had on something that they couldn't see. They didn't know that Jesus Christ was going to create a beautiful reality where in 2016 we'd still be instructing people to live according to the teachings of Jesus. They didn't know what to expect as they moved through those times, but they persevered and they stood firm upon their foundation. And then gentleness. Again, we we know the scripture, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's where we get this gentleness from. Um, The definition of it would be humble or to be mild-mannered. Um, I, I can think of a host of examples of people that are not mild-mannered, and that's one of the areas where we need to, to really seek to be gentle. We would say this would be in contrast to the Pharisees, who were boastful, and they always made everything about their attention, and they, they declared they were right. They wanted to stone Jesus rather than being mild-mannered, hearing him out, listening to what he had to say, and ultimately realizing that that was the truth. An answer I, from Scripture that I find in regards to being mild-mannered that I think everybody in our culture could work on is... A soft answer turns away wrath. How often could that be the truth? And I, I've had moments where I know I'm sitting in a moment where somebody's being mean to me or speaking very violently to me, and I would just, okay, you know, the, you might see it that way, and, and you know, be very, very soft mannered and mild mannered. And in that situation, we can have faith that God will reverse it. I, I promise you that if you have a situation where somebody's speaking very violently to you and you try to have a soft answer, you will better that situation rather than make it worse. If you start to have a violent answer, you, I'm sure everybody in the room can imagine the response. You'll start fights. And speaking of fights, that is our seventh thing here. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. 
This is the Apostle Paul instructing Timothy to move through this time to seek in the Greek. It would be the Ionios Zoe, the eternal life, and, and seek after this. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, again, going back to the beginning of this message, all of these things, adding faith to your life, adding love to your life, adding gentleness to your life, seeking these things with all your being, again, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to pursue them. He doesn't say just, you know, hope you run into faith and love and kindness. No, pursue them with all your might. You know, run after them. And as you seek these things, you are to take hold of eternal life. That life is not something that you're adding faith to your life today, love to your life today, and you're going to get eternal life when you die. That is not the message of Christianity. That is not what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy here. The eternal life that he's encouraging him to find is the life that he was living in that moment. That if you add faith to your life, if you add love to your life, if you build upon those things and pursue those things, you will be taking hold of the best life that God has for you. You will be essentially finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ. The thief. Again, the thief is the my way or the highway. Right? It's, I'm going to do this my way because that's the way that I've trusted every time. Yet, sadly, we, we've often watched it crumble. And yet we still cleave to that and trust in that type of life. This is the carnal wisdom that will always fail this world. And I, I wrote on my notes, since when does that work? Since when does carnal wisdom work? My younger brother, being 26 years old, he understood very clearly, no, it doesn't. It's the thief. It still kills and destroys everything that we have. When we focus on our own ways, our own thoughts, our own solutions, it takes away everything. Jesus comes that we might have Aeonio Zoe, eternal life, a life that is beyond life on this planet. The key for us to... Oh, I thought I had more notes. Uh, the key for us to understand that eternal life is for us to understand that the Bible is not just a book about the first century. It's not just a book about the ancient Jews it's a book that is the living word of God. That when we read this instruction to Timothy here, we know that, yes, there was a primary context. He was moving through that first century generation, cleaving to the teachings of Jesus Christ, having faith that if he listened to the words of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added. If you listen to the teachings of Jesus, that if you listen to my teachings and put them into practice, you will be like the wise man who built his house on, the faith, on, on a rock. He knew that if he listened to Jesus, he would find that life now, that that is the reality of life in Christ, that we're not offering people to die and go to heaven and live somewhere else, and that's the hope of Christianity. The hope of Christianity is that you can find your best life now, and it's only in context of understanding what these saints were suffering and what you might be suffering in your own life that God's healing and God's promises actually come to life. So we must begin to view this book, this Bible, as not only a historical story about how God has worked through Old Covenant Israel and how he has manifested a new covenant for us today. And then somehow we say, well, where are we in the Bible? Where's our story in the Bible? Our story is this spiritual story. There's not one person in this room who can say, I don't know what sin is. I don't know what it means to be stuck in darkness or depravity or to feel numb or not to understand what God's best is for my life or to be confused in regards to how to find life and life to the full. We all know it. That's the story of the Garden of Eden. Are you going to eat of the tree of life and enjoy the, what God's best is for you? Or are you going to continue to live the way that you understand it, the thief, steal, kill, and destroy everything that God has come to offer? That's the question that we're posing to the world. That's the simplest way that we could offer it to the world is life and life to the full. We're not offering some experience far off. We need to understand what the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy allowed those instructions to become our reality as we seek first, we pursue 
faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, and the host of things that are mentioned here. I'm going to end in prayer, and then we're going to go into our hymn this morning, and I pray that we will begin to truly see the fruit of all these things in our life. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would open up our Bible and we would truly begin to see that and continue to see that as your living word. Lord, that we would understand that the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy to pursue these things and that we would pursue them with all our might, ultimately showing the world at large life and life to the full. Lord, we thank you for your instruction through Scripture. We thank you for the spirit that gives us the desire to live upon a firm foundation, Lord. And ultimately, we thank you for giving us all of these things. Lord, we magnify you this morning. We thank you for life to the full. And we pray that we will continue to walk worthy. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.